Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, February 2nd, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. February 2nd on this February 2nd, 2-2. Our president went too, too far at the prayer breakfast. Can I get a choo-choo? Can I get a chop-chop? We have seen a campaign of ISIS and genocide against Christians where they cut off heads. Not since the Middle Ages have we seen that. We haven't seen that. The cutting off of heads. Now they cut off the heads. They drown people in steel cages. Haven't seen this I haven't seen this. Nobody's seen this for many, many years. Now, this was after he referred to General Mattis, Secretary of Defense Mattis, as Mad Dog Mattis, which, by the way, you heard on the show, no one actually calls him who knows him. But anyway, he said, Mad Dog Mattis. Oh, I shouldn't say that here. You know, it's the prayer breakfast. This was after he said to the pastor overseeing the prayer breakfast, ah, the hell with it. But anyway, so he shouldn't say Mad Dog Mattis. But all this talk of the beheading Uh, You know, he says this all the time, talks always about beheadings, and I guess there's just so much else to fact check and it doesn't matter, but I'm going to go in, I'm going to be your huckleberry, that we haven't seen beheadings since the Middle Ages. It's not true! It's just not true! Yes, of course, the French Revolution, but do you know Norway... In Norway, they were doing beheadings up until, well, the 19th, late 19th century. Uh, 1876 was Christopher Nielsen Grindel. He was beheaded. In fact, in all the countries that are considered the most civilized these days, beheading was the preferred form of execution. In Iceland, they went on until 1830, carried out with axes in Denmark in 1892. Sweden continued beheadings for a few decades past that. It executed a mass murderer, Johann Philip Nordland, by manual cleaver in 1900, and that was replaced by the guillotine, also a beheading device, and that was used until 1910. By the way, the official beheading axe of Finland resides today in the Museum of Crime in Vanta. The official, oh, have you seen the official? I'm sorry. I believe that is a counterfeit off-brand axe. This is the official beheading axe where you see commercials in Finland. Next nip. The first name in beheading, the official beheading acts of the country of Finland. But this is just prologue for the real beheading action, and that is in Saudi Arabia. The country, our great ally of Saudi Arabia. Not only do the Saudis behead and behead with frequency, Saudi Arabia, in fact, 
the last year for which uh, records are available, was setting beheading records. This from The Guardian. Saudi Arabia carried out at least 157 executions in 2015, with beheadings reaching their highest level in the kingdom in two decades. Now, beheadings rarely dip below 100. I mean, a double-digit beheading year in Saudi Arabia, someone's not doing his job. So I would guess if you cumulatively totaled all the Saudi beheadings, Saudi, our great ally, and compared them to ISIS, Saudi's ahead, by ahead, or possibly behind. Now, the reason that Trump always talks about beheadings is Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy, talks about this because he has training in hypnosis, and he says it's the vivid imagery. Like when he talks about, do you know how high a parcel of money that's $3 million is? He likes to put a vivid image in your head. So he's always talking about the beheadings, and it works. I mean, he talks about them more explicitly, makes all these untrue statements about how it's unprecedented, but we seem to respond. We seem to cower at the thought of ISIS beheading us, even though our good, great ally, Saudi Arabia, is swinging the axe left and right. I do one last note about beheadings. I've always thought it should be deheadings. We have decapitations, not decapitations. Why not deheadings? Okay, on the show today, I keep the spiel in the same setting. It's the prayer breakfast, but this time I actually talk about Trump's talk of prayer. He gets that about as right as he did the beheadings. But first, let's talk about the man who could be the next Supreme Court justice with the woman who is currently the Truman Capote Professor of Law at Yale. It's Emily Bazelon. I just found out about this Truman Capote thing. It's pretty irrelevant to the high-stakes political appointment that we're going to talk about, but I can't let it go. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say, oh, I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we gvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence we looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com Defender. Neil Gorsuch is the kind of Supreme Court nominee that Jeb Bush would have picked, that Marco Rubio, that pick your normal Republican presidential candidate. So in that regard, I suppose it's good that Donald Trump picked him. On the other hand, the fact that he's there is only because Merrick Garland never got a hearing. Well, let's break down the Gorsuch nomination. First of all, what kind of judge or justice we think he's going to be, and then we'll talk about the politics of it. And if you stay for all this, I promise you, you will hear... The Case of the Frozen Trucker. It's like a Nancy Drew story, except it stars Emily Bazelon. Emily Bazelon in The Case of the Frozen Trucker. Emily, as you know, is a political gabfest mainstay and is a writer for the New York Times Magazine and also a Truman Capote fellow at Yale Law School. So she'll give her analysis in cold blood. Hello, Emily. 
Hello, Mike. I just want to say the story does not star me. I am merely the narrator of the frozen trucker story. Oh, but maybe we'll find out that you were the frozen trucker in a, in a uh, last real whodunit. Yes. Maybe. And I just found out about this Truman Capote thing. Congratulations on that. Oh, yeah, I know. I One hopes that he is not rolling over in his grave to be associated with me, but it is really awesome title. It's right. It's better than some guy's chair who you've never heard of with like three middle names. Truman Capote. So there are indications that uh, Gorsuch is quite conservative. He hasn't explicitly ruled on abortion. He literally wrote a book about the inadvisability of physician-assisted suicide, ruled in favor of religious exceptions for contraception. So we're, we're hearing he'll be Scalia-like. I've also read, but not Clarence Thomas-like. In in practical matters, is he going to be much different from where Thomas and Samuel Alito are on this court? There'll be a lot of votes that he casts with Thomas and Alito and with Roberts. I mean, they're going to be a conservative block in a lot of cases, but he's also going to have his moments, as Scalia did, where he could go his own way. So, like, for example, if you are an originalist the way Scalia is and Gorsuch claims to be, and you are very fixed on the text of the Constitution as it was written in the 18th century, that prevents a lot of things, evolving understandings, like the marriage decision, like Roe versus Wade, granting a national right to access to abortion. But it also means that you can be kind of a stickler about unreasonable searches and seizures under the Fourth Amendment. Scalia was sometimes on the side of criminal defendants or suspects, I should say, in Fourth Amendment cases, and one would expect Gorsuch to be as well. What does his writing on physician-assisted suicide tell us about what he would say on abortion? Uh, I, I, if he was a theologian, it would tell us a lot. But from a, a, a member of the court, how correlated are they? How much does the logic of one apply to the other? So I think this is actually pretty oblique. I mean, the abortion opponent world is very happy with this pick and satisfied with him. So maybe they know something I don't. And um maybe he's given private signals that assure him that he is down for overturning Roe versus Wade. But the line that jumps out of his book about physician-assisted suicide, and I'm going to quote it, is the intentional taking of human life by private persons is always wrong. So maybe that means that he adamantly opposes abortion and would vote to overturn Roe, or maybe he's sending the kind of signal that seems reassuring to opponents of abortion, but doesn't necessarily apply to that context the way that they want it to. Yes. every That's interesting. Every Everyone who's pro-life would hear that and say, aha, aha, that means... That has to mean that that someone who would say that, forget a judge, but someone who would hold that sentiment will be pro-life since a fetus is a life. And yet no one who's pro-choice would adhere to that. They'd hear that phrase. They might dispute that phrase as far as physician-assisted suicide, but none would be compelled to say, yes, that does argue against abortion because they don't believe a fetus is a human life. That's right. And you could even argue that if you were a conservative judge and you wanted to signal to abortion opponents that you're one of their people, but you also wanted to create enough ambiguity that you weren't necessarily setting yourself up to be, um, you know, the big target of pro-choice forces, you would say something exactly like this and then you would do what you want to do when you actually face the question on the court. But if we want to talk abortion, let's talk beyond Roe versus Wade. Last term in a 5-3 ruling because Scalia 
was dead. The uh, court threw out the Texas abortion access law. The practical results of the law would make would make it so that some women would have to travel hundreds of miles to get abortion and it, they would require physicians to have admitting principles. And a 5-3 ruling doesn't seem that close. But if you game out the math, let's say that Gorsuch is this anti-abortion vote and let's say Kennedy does retire. I mean, it's not too hard to think that in a couple of years, Texas enacts the exact same law and they get an opposite ruling from the Supreme Court. Right. So that's something the Supreme Court does not like to do, to face the same facts and go in the other direction. But it happened with actually a case about late-term abortion. Um, and the court absolutely just flipped from one side to the other when Justice Alito replaced Justice O'Connor. You could see such a thing happen in this context again. More likely, I would say, would be that you'd have a slightly different challenge. Um, if I'd have to, if I was, um, a lawyer opposing abortion right now, I would wait for Gorsuch to be confirmed and then tee up one of these cases um, about a 20-week ban Mm -hmm. on abortion. And that would be like the the incremental step, the way to test the waters and see if you could get Kennedy's vote for that. And then obviously – The bigger question is whether Justice Kennedy will also retire during the Trump administration and who will replace him if that were to happen, because that's when the court actually changes the the political balance. Gorsuch clerk for Kennedy, right? Indeed, he did. He has a good relationship with Kennedy. And so I'm sure you've noticed there's been this kind of interesting sub-theme in the news about Gorsuch, well, this is a way of reassuring Kennedy that Trump isn't going to pick some crazy person who he would be embarrassed to replace by, and that would presumably entice Kennedy, who is 80 years old, retire sooner rather than later. I mean, we'll see. Kennedy may or may not care about that. Anthony Kennedy is a wise, learned man. You think he would be reassured by this one pick that Trump won't do something crazy? I scratch my chin and say, hmm... I know. It does seem like we're sort of imagining him to be in kindergarten Yeah. yeah. when we imagine that. Now, Gorsuch's personality has been complimented. A good writer, a clear thinker, a nice fellow. Okay, points in his favor as a human being. But how will that, how does that affect the court? Because Scalia, for all his um, charm, quote unquote, could piss people off. And actually, there were probably a lot of, um, there were a lot of coalitions that were never formed because people didn't want to work with Scalia. So assess how his personality might play into the dynamics of the court. Well, it's only helpful for building a conservative majority to have someone who's reaching out and trying to form coalitions. Um, you know, Justice William Brennan famously talked about how the whole point of being a justice is learning to count to five because that's how many votes you need. All of that said, I think the idea that these personality distinctions matter enormously can get overstated. I mean, you know, there are some cases in which, like, you might see, I mean, you're never supposed to talk about the justices horse trading. Presumably they do it sometimes. Um, but you know, in big cases where they have strong feelings, the fact that they like someone and he is more polite to them is probably not going to sway them. All right. In our final few minutes, could you give us the case of the frozen trucker? Yeah. So the frozen truckers name is 
Alphonse Madden, and he was driving his truck down the highway in Montana one cold night in January 2009, and his brakes froze like around 11 o'clock. He called for his repairman. He was told to wait, and then he realized that there was no heat in the cab of his truck. So he was really worried about being cold, and after a couple of hours of waiting, he couldn't feel his feet. He felt like his torso was going numb. He kept calling. They impatiently told him to wait and gave him at one point the order that I Either he was supposed to stay there and wait or he was supposed to drag his load with his frozen brakes. So at some point after one in the morning, um, Alphonse Madden gave up on this repair guy and he unhitched his load and went somewhere to get warm. And I should say he came back once he realized that the repair guy had actually shown up. But he was fired for disobeying this order to stay with his load. So he then sued under a whistle provision in federal law that says that um, if you refuse to operate your vehicle because of public safety concerns or fear for your own safety, then you're supposed to get off the hook. You're not supposed to get fired. And he won. He won in the administrative law proceedings before the Department of Labor. So then the trucking company Trans Am challenged this um, win in court, and they go up to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, where Gorsuch is one of three judges hearing this case. So the other two judges, not Gorsuch, looked at this case, and they said, okay, we have to defer to the Department of Labor interpretation of this statute. This is under this doctrine called Chevron deference, which is another phrase that's going to come up a lot during this nomination. It's the idea that courts generally, if there's an ambiguous statute, they defer to the expertise of agencies, which are tasked with writing regulations and have the time to study and figure all this out. Um, This is a longstanding doctrine that Scalia supported, but Gorsuch has expressed a lot of skepticism about it and basically thinks thinks that courts are giving agencies too much power and should take some of this interpretive authority back. So in any case, these two judges, not Judge Gorsuch, in this case on the Tenth Circuit said, okay, well, the Department of Labor judge said that if you refuse to operate a vehicle um, under the conditions set by your employer, that counts. But Gorsuch disagreed with that, and he wrote an opinion that uh, he's really just an excellent, excellent writer. So I'm going to read you the beginning of it and then explain to you why I think in the end I'm not sure he really got the better of the argument. So Gorsuch starts off by describing the predicament of this trucker. He could drag the trailer to its destination, which was illegal, and Gorsuch says maybe sarcastically offered as an option, or he could sit in this freezing cab and wait for help, legal if unpleasant. Gorsuch writes, the trucker chose none of the above, deciding instead to unhook the trailer and drive his truck to a gas station. He was fired for disobeying orders. It might be fair to ask whether Trans Am's decision was a wise or kind one, but it's not our job to answer questions like that. Our job is to decide whether the decision was an illegal one. And then Gorsuch goes on to say that this Department of Labor interpretation of refusal to operate was essentially absurd because what the trucker did was actually operate the vehicle by driving away, and how can that possibly count as refuse to operate? So the part of this that um I find a little, like, too clever by half, I suppose, is that 
Trans Am gave Alphonse Madden a choice, right? I mean, it was true that they said you can stay in the cab and it's hard to reconcile driving off with refusing to operate if that's the only choice. But then they also gave this ridiculous but like uncontroverted option, according to the testimony, that he could try to drag the truck with the, try, try to drag the load with his frozen brakes. And if you're thinking of it through that lens, then it does seem like refusing to operate is relevant. And Gorsuch, in his opinion, doesn't really deal with that. Maybe the whole thing seems like, you know, angels dancing on the head of a pin. But no, no, is- not if you're on the Montana roads at night. <laughs> and not if you're Alphonse Madden trying yeah. to get your back pay for this firing. Yeah. Um, so Gorsuch here is being a stickler for what's called textualism. You mm-hmm. look at the literal text and he is mocking his colleagues on the court for what he says is like adding words onto refusal to operate. But I would argue that he's also, if you're being a stickler, then you should also reckon with the fact that Trans Am gave this operating order that was insane and that Madden did refuse to carry it out. So anyway, that's my synopsis of the frozen trucker case. I would also say if he was being an originalist, I'm sure the original intent of the of the writers of that law, which weren't the founders, but whichever body wrote the law recently, was exactly to keep Alphonse Madden off the road that night. Uh, but if you are interested in textualism, you do not care about intent. You scorn well, yes. intent. But te- right? this is where Scalia- textualism and originalism butt heads. Well, they can, yes. But um, but Scalia and Gorsuch have only scorned for people who look at what Congress was intended. And Gorsuch, in fact, makes a point of saying in the frozen trucker opinion, I don't care what Congress intended. That's irrelevant. Yes. I would just say that uh, it depends on what the meaning of the word vehicle is. He said, Gorsuch said he indeed drove his vehicle. And I would say once the cab is separated from the, the load, that's a different vehicle. He transformed the vehicle. Oh, interesting. The other two judges focused on operating, having a different meaning than drive. <laughs> so, uh, I definitely could not be seated on an appellate court. But perhaps Emily oh, well. but perhaps Emily Bazelon can. She's a staff writer for the New York Times magazine and is a mainstay of the political gab fest where she'll be discussing this case and others. Thank you so much, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And now the spiel. Let us now bow our heads and give praise to the Creator, and remember His words, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was struggling in the ratings, and you gave me something to poke fun of. We had tremendous success on The Apprentice, and when I ran for president, I had to leave the show. That's when I knew for sure I was doing it. And they hired a big, big movie star, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to take my place. And we know how that turned out. The ratings went right down the tubes. It's been a total disaster. And Mark will never, ever bet against Trump again. And I want to just pray for Arnold, if we can, for those ratings, okay?
That part about the ratings, that wasn't in the Bible. Let's go to Matthew 25. For I was hungry and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Ah, taking in strangers. That is from the parable of the sheep and the goats did not explicitly come up at the national prayer breakfast where Donald Trump spoke this morning. So you remember the sheep and the goats where the Lord separated the sheep to his right and those that fed the hungry, sheltered the strangers, and clothed the naked were among them. But then he put the goats to his left. And those who didn't feed, clothe, or slake, or welcome the least of God's brothers, were in that group. And do you know how the Lord decided who was a sheep and who was a goat? By extreme vetting. It was like an extreme vetting zoo. Well, it was more extreme bleating, which we which you'd think would be a layup for the sheep. But if a minority member of the goat community could bleat, then he was good. Here's some more of the prayer breakfast. Hearken now to the gospel of Trump. Some people didn't like Rex because he actually got along with leaders of the world. I said, no, you have to understand that's a good thing. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. Good thing, not a bad thing to get along with world leaders. But then Trump said, when you hear about the tough phone calls I'm having, don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. They're tough. We have to be tough. It's time we're going to be a little tough, folks. We're taken advantage of by every nation in the world virtually. It's not going to happen anymore. So getting along is a good thing, but being tough on other nations is a good thing. Which nations, though, is he talking about? The one he was tough with, who he was referring to, that was Australia. Also note today that the U.S. Treasury eased sanctions that have been placed on Russia the FSB, which is the successor to the KGB, we're going a little easier on them. So that's not one of those nations you got to be tough with. Also today at the prayer breakfast, Trump said this. Our republic was formed on the basis that freedom is not a gift from government, but that freedom is a gift from God. Which is the Reagan doctrine. But in the inauguration, remember, he said this. It is the right of all nations to put their own interests first. We do not seek to impose our way of life on anyone, but rather to let it shine as an example. We will shine for everyone to follow. So it's not the Reagan doctrine. It is not the creed of Pope John Paul II, who championed freedom throughout the world as a policy and as God's will. So if you think freedom is a gift from God, of course you're going to pursue what is necessarily your moral duty to advance it. Now, I don't believe freedom's a gift from God. I believe it's a human construct. But Locke believed it. Our founding fathers believed it. They thought it was a natural right. The Pope thinks that. Reagan thinks that. Trump says he thinks that because that's what you say. But if you don't let it influence your policy or if you have the opposite policy, then it's only a thing you say. So often do Trump's explicit statements contradict themselves that we tend to gloss past the nonsense of what he's saying by implication. And that is going on here. I wanted to point out the implications, the contradictory implications of what he was saying. But actually, in the case of his religious thinking and beliefs and what he professes, it could become explicit. 
A Trump doctrine of religious freedom is making the rounds. It's called Establishing a Government-Wide Initiative to Respect Religious Freedom. It was unearthed by the Investigative Fund in the nation, and it was leaked by government employees who were afraid. The state of Mississippi tried a version of this. It was ruled unconstitutional. That's on appeal. The idea is to establish a carve-out for not having to follow gay rights laws or trans rights laws or contraception or anything that you find irreligious if you are religious or say you are religious. And by religious, we of course mean Christian. According to the text that's been circulating, all the examples like gay rights and contraception and even the belief that sex is not until marriage, these are not Hindu beliefs. These are not Shinto beliefs. Who knows if this order will be enacted? If history is an indication, I'll tell you who doesn't know, key executive agencies that will have to enforce the order. So let us all end in prayer. Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. And that's it for today's show. It behooves just producer Mary Wilson to not allow just producer Chris Berube to belittle the doubt that besets Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, as he beholds the Panoply Chief Content Officer Andy Bowers' benighted tendency to besprinkle his podcasts with wacky sound effects and slide whistles. The gist, bedeviling the bejesus out of linguists since 1907. Umpru depru du and thanks for listening. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.